Hello and welcome to another episode of Phenomena, the podcast where we talk about women who have been written out of or underwritten in Irish history, irrespective of whether they were good, bad or indifferent, as long as they did something interesting. We are once again recording from not quite lockdown, phase one has just started, but we still can't meet each other in person, so again, apologies if the sound quality is less than ideal. I just realized that I forgot to say my name. So I am Maria and I am here with Shauna. And it's Shauna's turn this week. And because we're almost free, she's going to talk to us about... I'm doing Lizzie LeBlanc, who was a famous mountaineer. Now, she wasn't always known as Lizzie LeBlanc. She was born Elizabeth Hawkins Witchhead in 1860 in Dublin to an Irish baronet. They lived in Killen Carrick House near Greystone since she was little, but her father died when she was 11, and she then inherited the house and nearly 809 hectares, which is 2,000 acres of land in counties Wicklow, Dublin and Meath. She described her childhood as a happy one and would often feign headaches in order to abandon her studies and play in the garden, which I also did a lot of myself as a child and as an adult and like most aspiring ladies of the landed classes she moved to London and made her society debut at 17. So when she was 18 she married Captain Fred Burnaby who was a celebrity adventurer, a best-selling author, soldier and at the time considered one of the most eligible bachelors in Britain as he was the first man to cross the English Channel by hot air balloons. So apparently that made him quite the catch. A little, I'm just imagining him as like a Phileas Fogg type character with like a big moustache. Also like crossed with Indiana Jones and her, she's courting him with I love you written on her eyelids. I think it's very, uh, it's very romantic in a weird kind of fantasy Wizard of Oz way. Now, in some sources, it says she has a son. And then others, it doesn't. I was doubting if it was true that they had a son. But after I did some further digging, it seems she did definitely have a son with Burnaby and his name was Harry. Within less than two years, the couple were living apart and Lizzie moved from one European resort to another in search of a cure for the lung trouble which plagued her throughout her life. So she had awful lung trouble and ended up in Switzerland in search of a cure, as people who could afford to often did at the time. You know, you often hear in those uh, in books and stuff from that time that people went to the sea to cure their lungs and things like that. But why it's interesting about the sun not being mentioned, I think, is because Burnaby and Lizzie never got back together. They didn't actually get divorced. She just kind of went to Europe and left. Captain Fred and Harry in England. She settled in Switzerland and in the summer of 1881 she arrived at the still undeveloped mountain village of Chamonix and saw for the first time, as she says, those glacier-clad alpine ranges which were to mean so much to me for the rest of my life. And two weeks later her and a quote-unquote lady friend as they mentioned in every source, but I don't think they meant in a gay way. They just wanted to specify that it was a woman. 
um, in all of the sources, spontaneously decided to climb two-thirds of the way up Mont Blanc, dressed in high heel boots and shady hats. So they weren't exactly kitted out in their regatta boots and rain gear and everything. They had on big old Victorian-style dresses. And it is here that she had her first taste of what would become her lifelong passion, which was mountain climbing. Now, at the time, mountaineering was not seen as an appropriate activity for women. The Alpine Club, which was formed in 1857, did not allow female members. It also would have caused outrage if a woman wore men's clothes. So as to not cause offence, she would wear a skirt for the first part and then take that off and wear breeches when out of public sight. It's really funny because when I was looking at this, I was like, Jesus, people were very temperamental back then. You know, people freak out over the, the smallest things about gender and stuff. And I was very like up on a high horse of how we've evolved and everything. And then I was like, oh, no, that's what happens all the time. <laughs> people freak out about people of different genders using toilets and men wearing women's clothes and all that. I think I was flattering ourselves by thinking we had evolved, but we haven't. But even just from like a question of modesty, like everyone remembers Nipplegate from the Super Bowl a few years ago. Well, if they're old enough, everybody remembers Nipplegate from the Super Bowl a few years ago. Yeah, that apparently changed TV afterwards forever because people freaked out so much. Big time. That changed the censorship laws for most TV shows in America. And Justin Timberlake never got anything said to him. And poor Janet Jackson didn't really work again for a long time yeah so I guess if we think about it that way that like breaches would have been immodest as opposed to like gender bending it's just like you're not supposed to see a woman's form because god forbid if you see her legs then you have an uncontrollable urge and there's nothing you can do about it nothing at all oh what a world we live in Maria what a world we live in so anyway, uh, just to put into perspective of the life she had lived up until then, she says that not till she had her first climb, had I put on my own boots, and I was none too sure of which foot should go on which boot. It is difficult for me to realize now that for several years longer, it did not occur to me that I could do without a maid. I owe a supreme debt of gratitude to the mountains for knocking from me the shackles of conventionality but I had to struggle hard for my freedom. My mother faced the music on my behalf when my grand-aunt, Lady Bentonick, sent out a frantic SOS saying, stop her climbing mountains. She is scandalizing all of London and looks like a Red Indian. So they weren't too happy about her doing it. And that kind of quote kind of sums up her life up until then. You know, she did come from a very privileged background and she would have been used to a certain style of living. So it wasn't until she started climbing and being in the mountains and stuff that she ditched the kind of luxurious living that she grew up with. But it took a little while. She didn't do it immediately. Even from a practical level with like the, the having the maid and all that kind of stuff, like the outfits that would have been popular at the time for women in particular, or for like the fashionable outfits for, for the women of her like social area, had to have a second person to, to do up the buttons and take the buttons down. So like if your very clothes are forcing you to have a maid so that you can just get dressed in the morning, it makes sense that it wouldn't occur to you that you can live life any other way. It's crazy, isn't it? And not being able to put on your own shoe because you didn't know which foot it would go on. There's something very innocent, you know? 
about a woman saying that. But at least she kind of had a sense of humor about it, you know. But her interest developed from just climbing. Because she also became a pioneer of mountain photography. Oh, cool. Like my pun. Anyway, (laughs) the photographic equipment of the late Victorian era was heavy and awkward, and setting it up in sub-zero temperatures on top of a mountain peak wouldn't have been easy. It's very interesting to note at this point as well is that photography would have been relatively new. Um, it would have been still quite a, a novel thing. So it's very cool that she kind of took it upon herself to, to A, climb these mountains as a lady and B, take a camera with her and photograph them. So did she carry off the photography equipment herself or would like a servant or somebody have carried that up for her? At the beginning, I think she had a whole posse with her, you know, people that tie up her boots and people to carry the camera and stuff like that but as she gained independence and confidence I suppose she actually became a lot more independent and self-reliant and and did a lot of the stuff herself because I was just thinking like that photography equipment must have been like very heavy back then big time she actually describes it here because in 1883 she published a book called the high alps in winter or mountaineering in search of health And it was her first book, but she ended up writing loads of books about her climbs. And it was her photographs which offer the most vivid account of her career. And she was actually one of the first to photograph mountains at such close quarters. And this is a quote from her. When I got my first camera, a very cumbersome concern, on a stand, I had to learn everything as best I could. The photographer gave me hints, and his advice as to developing was, developed till the plate is as black as mortal sin. It was trying work setting up a camera with half-frozen hands, hiding one's head under a focusing cloth which kept blowing away and adjusting innumerable screws into a temperature well below freezing point. But one learnt one's job very thoroughly, and I confess that even now I never feel satisfied until I have done all the developing, printing, etc. of an exposure myself. So yeah, it would have been a big, heavy, awkward thing. It wasn't exactly like you just have a smartphone or, you know, a little handy thing in your backpack. Uh, it would have been a big, huge rigmarole. Well, that's the thing, because I was thinking for myself, like, I can barely walk up Patrick's Hill with my handbag, let alone walking up the Alps with a, an early prototype of a camera. To be fair, Patrick's Hill is very steep. <laughs> I wonder, I, you know, I would compare the Alps to Patrick Hill. It's tough. It's tough going. So, she also became involved at an early stage in filmmaking. And in 1902, there is a catalogue that lists 10 of her short films, all in Switzerland, featuring bobsleigh racing, tobogganing, and figure skating, making her the world's first mountain filmmaker, as well as one of the first female filmmakers. Pretty cool. That's very cool. So getting back to the thing that I was saying earlier about her husband and the sun and the mystery kind of shrouding the sun, her husband Fred Burnaby was killed in battle in Sudan in 1885. So they never got divorced. He died. So I don't know what the divorce laws were like in England at the time, but it didn't have to come to that. And she had essentially left anyway and had no intentions of going back. And... Fred apparently knew before going to battle that there was a good chance that he'd die and he left the son to a soldier comrade 
and Lizzie stayed in Switzerland. The reason that I think it's worth noting the kind of mystery around the son is that there's not really a mention of him anywhere. And in some of the records, it says that they had a son. And then in others, in articles and stuff, they just leave it out. And the reason that I find that interesting, it's because it's long overdue that these women's stories are being told, you know, and getting celebrated. But I think there's also a tendency from journalists or whoever to kind of tilt the narrative. Like, why wouldn't they have just said, yeah, she had a son. Yeah, she left them. So she never kind of returned to the son because she'd be a quote unquote, like a bad mother. And as if that would like taint the rest of her story, then do they just purposely leave that out because they didn't want to get into it? So the laws around that time in England were starting to change. I think that they'd only changed uh, maybe a few years before that, where certainly up to quite recent to that point, children were the property of the father. So the mother had no rights over the children. So there's a woman called Caroline Norton, who I am reading about at the moment in my personal life who did a lot of work to kind of fight for women's access rights to their children but essentially as I said I think that the laws had changed by the time that Lillian was around but if she had been having marital issues with her husband and the kids were essentially the property of the husband it's not it, it might not even necessarily be that she was a bad mother it could be that she just the, the infant was being used as a pawn and she wasn't allowed access to that child. Now, I don't know the story of what happened in this particular instance, but I do think it's important to know that that right up until kind of like the late mid 19th century, women could just have their children forcibly removed by their husbands and there was nothing that they could do about it because that does change the narrative around whether mother and a bad mother and much more focuses the narrative around the institutional rights of women in society at the time. It's funny though because it's contemporary articles that leave it out not ones of the time it's it's more modern ones that like have been written in the last two years that have left out that arc and I don't I just think that there is a danger and it happens all the time with women I think that they they're afraid to say the flaws, like that if a woman's a hero, she has to be 100% perfect. And, you know, not that it was even a flaw, if that is the law, or if it wasn't, you know, she was still a human and made decisions. She couldn't be a full-on hero for her whole life. I just think it's really interesting that sometimes articles just leave out certain things because they want to paint someone in a certain light. For men and women. Yeah, but also don't forget that like a lot of the adventures and oh, a lot of the male adventures that we would have learned about growing up, like their kids just never get mentioned. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, we, we can't have it two ways. Do we want women to be recognized for their achievements, you know, and then have history written about them in the same way that history is written about men, which sometimes means just not mentioning the children because it's not relevant to the story. Or does do we have to... Like, why do children always have to be part of the story when you're talking about a woman? That's very true. Very true. Yes, I like that. I didn't actually think of it from that perspective. Very good. (laughs) I concur. 
So Lizzie had a second marriage, this time to a mathematician. So she had quite very interesting taste in men. And his name was Frederick Main, but he also died a couple of years later uh, in 1892. I think he had lung trouble as well, which a lot of people would have at the time. When you keep mentioning lung trouble, do you mean tuberculosis? They didn't say any anything that I found just said lung trouble. Hers didn't trouble her again, so I don't think it was TB. It might have just been, I don't know, acute bronchitis or something. They didn't they didn't say, but they all they just said lung trouble. It's very vague. So during the following decade, Mrs. Maine, as she was then known, so she had a lot of names, a lot of names. We'll just continue with Lizzie anyway, would spend six summers climbing in Norway and Lapland, becoming one of the first mountaineers to ever climb there. She recorded 33 climbs here, 27 of them first ascents by anybody. She also defied tradition by occasionally climbing without a guide and was described as being among the very earliest, probably the first to attempt manless climbing which would have been a big change from, as we were saying earlier, when she would have had a whole crew of people with her. So slowly but surely, or fast actually, considering it only took like six years, she ditched all the the extravagance and and did it solo. So, yeah, she herself wrote in the early 1930s that the chief reason why women so seldom climbed 50 years ago was that unless they had the companionship of a father, brother or sister, it was looked at as most shocking for a female to sleep in a hut. I mean, there's a lot of Hollywood movies who have scenes based on the premise that it's shocking to have women anywhere near nature as well. Wild. Wild is good. Ah, you know, just the comedies is like showing them out in nature. Like, remember the parent trap where it's got your one thing and she's freaking out because she like can't straighten her hair or whatever. Sorry, I've just had like a big flashback of the parent trap. In a way, I was like, I'd really like to see that again. But then another part of me is like, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> anyway, in 1900, Lizzie married Aubrey LeBlonde, which is a great name, in my opinion. And this was her third marriage. And it was most successful because it lasted until her death, which was more than 30 years later. She bizarrely took his first and last name and published books and everything from then on as Aubrey LeBlonde but she was still known as Lizzie LeBlanc to her friends and climbing comrades. So, again, she had more names than Prince. I don't know why she took his name. If she's publishing books under his name, maybe it was like a, you know, nom de plume, pseudonym, sell more books if they don't realise I'm a woman kind of job. Perhaps. It's funny, though, because she had books published already in her own name, so maybe it was an intentional move, because people still do that. Look at J.K. Rowling, you know. And by the early 1900s, she had more or less retired from climbing, so she would have been around 40. But she remained one of the sport's best-known spokeswomen. And in 1907, she helped establish and was the first elected president of the Ladies' Alpine Club, which was the first climbing association for women in the world. And she also turned her hand to travel writing and to family history and published a two-volume translation of the letters of her great-great-great-grandmother, who was of a member of aristocracy. And then she travelled widely, both in Europe and beyond. In 1912, she and Aubrey 
This is where it gets confusing because she is known as Aubrey and her husband, but she and her husband toured China, Korea and Japan and returned via Russia, where Lizzie described Moscow and St. Petersburg in the last days of the star power. Oh, cool. She got a good bit of traveling under her belt. So she was going to retire, but then any ideas of that were squashed because the First World War broke out. And in one of the sources, it describes that on the 1st of August, she left on the first stage of her journey back to England. And in Basile that evening, seated on a veranda overlooking the Rhine, her attention was caught by the distant sound of artillery. She later believed the first gunfire of the Great War. Two days later in Paris, she learned that Britain and Germany were at war. So she got back to London and she immediately wanted to enroll in the war effort but she wasn't able to find a post in a British hospital because of her age. She would have been around 54. It wasn't like she was, you know, very old, but they wouldn't have her in England. And she was aware that there was a shortage of nursing staff in France. So she made her way to Dieppe, where she was taken on by the first hospital to which she applied. And she stayed there for two years and she carried out the very tasks of an orderly, And she'd make beds, wash and feed patients, administer medicine and sterilize instruments. And it's said that unlike some of the quote unquote very starchy English nurses, she was able to establish an easy rapport with the wounded French, sympathizing with their dislike of regimentations and listening to their tales of army and home life. She would write letters for them, organize concerts and read to them and also supply them with books and papers. Which is, again, pretty cool, considering the background that she came from. It's just nice. Yes, that's what it is. She seems like a nice person. I think we kind of have this idea of, you know, people from high society, Victorian era, that they all would have been, you know, snobs and didn't know how to put on their own shoes and stuff. So I think it's really a cool story that of the arc of her life, of what she ended up serving her life too you know with other people an adventure don't forget that philanthropy would have been quite a important part of that that level of society as well though particularly like the idea of like duty towards god by like helping out kind of those who are less fortunate it's funny that you mentioned that actually because i would think that a lot of that would revolve around organizing fundraisers and getting money together and stuff and that's also what she did she used her kind of contacts and she raised funds for a motor kitchen to be sent to the alps to an elite mountain infantry unit of the french army and it was an ambulance that was turned into a kitchen so that they could cook up there and she raised the money for that and she raised 32 pound herself by the sales of tickets for her lecture and the lecture was about mountaineering from a woman's point of view Cool. I know you're a big fan of women doing lecture series in the ladies that you like to research. It's funny. It just happened. It wasn't intentional, but uh, she did. She she ended up touring around a lot giving lectures. That's actually funny. I didn't notice that before. I, it was an accident. In late 1916, Lizzie returned to London to take charge of the British Army's appeal department and she was responsible for raising £1,200 weekly to fund the provision of an ambulance service to the French military. So she used her contacts to raise a lot of money. 
And in November 1918, she was engaged in the war office to lecture to troops awaiting demobilization. She visited various depots throughout the UK and in France during the winter of 1918 to 1919. Conditions were difficult with continuing food and fuel shortages. Her talks were held in unheated huts and the equipment available was often very unsatisfactory. One projector filling the hall with smoke and fumes before breaking down completely, while another burst into flames in the course of her talk. So she was really making use of subpar equipment. But attendance was compulsory for the soldiers, and she was afraid that the audience would be restless or would not be interested in what she was talking about. But they actually really liked her because she would allow them smoke during her talk. And she promised to hurry up to her conclusion if they indicated by shuffling their feet loudly that they were bored. So she had a nice sense of self-awareness, you know. Uh, When her lecture tour ended in France in early 1919, she extended her journey in order to visit some of the most notorious battlegrounds of the late war. So she took her camera to places that had been devastated by the war and this really affected her and she said that it was an overwhelming experience and it would determine the future course of her life she said of that time not till one has stood beside those tortured trenches can one realize what flesh and blood clothing a heroic spirit has endured and even then one cannot imagine more than a mere fraction of what it must have been when the hell of conflict was at its fiercest So much of her time in post-war years was devoted to the cause of Anglo-French understanding and shortly before her death in 1934, her contribution was recognised by the award of the Cross of the Legion d'Honneur for her work in war and peace. Throughout her life, she had been fortunate, as she says, in meeting interesting people, visiting interesting places and taking part in interesting events. Her photographs are recognised throughout the sport as one of the earliest pictures of some places and winter sports activities. And it's said that she affected tourism in the Alps and her photographs are used now as well to look at environmental change between then and now. But it's as an alpinist or mountaineer that she will be best remembered. And it's said in the all-male Alpine Club, what they said of her in her legacy, kind of in, in a journal about her, was that she was never surpassed in any mountaineer, professional or amateur of the so-called stronger sex. To her involvement with the Ladies Alpine Club, she brought an aptitude for business as well as a talent for friendship and appreciation of others' achievements, while her own career as one of a small group of adventurous spirits who defied the criticisms heaped upon them for indulging in so unwomanly a sport stood as an inspiration to the women climbers of a later and less confined generation. So yeah, that was Lizzie LeBlonde, a.k.a. Elizabeth Hawkins Whitshed, or Aubrey LeBlonde. But uh, she is a Greystones lady who reached great heights. That's awful. Sorry. (laughs) It's going to haunt me in my sleep. I was just thinking a talent for friendship is such a lovely way to describe somebody, isn't it? It's beautiful. Beautiful. Like, I would like to be remembered for my life achievements when I become dictator of the modern world. I'm sure that everybody will remember it. But um, as well as, you know, Maria, goddess of earth, I would also like it to to be remembered for my talent for friendship. 
<laughs> I'll note that down for when the time comes. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Duly noted. Yeah, so what do you think of Lizzie LeBlanc? Do you know, I act, she's very interesting. And there's a series of books that I used to read as a kid called the Chalet School Books. And they would have, I think the first one was published sometime like around kind of in the 1910s. And there was like 62 books and they were about a boarding school in Austria set up by, by an English woman. And this story just reminds me so much of that. It's kind of like Lizzie kind of was the precursor that allowed these things to happen because these were these independent women who were living in the Alps and they would go climbing and they do all these things. And it's just, yeah, it just reminds me of how much I wanted to be like them when I was younger. And it's cool to kind of know who the real life person who kind of kicked all of this off was. So yeah, no, it's, I'm, I'm glad that I, I know this story now for sure. Definitely. I actually think they're trying to get a statue of her put up in Wicklow in Greystones as like a kind of local hero. So maybe more people will know of her. Yeah, and it's I've I've started to see her name crop up every so often on like the March eighth lists and stuff. So it's nice that like people are starting to to know a little bit more about her because like everyone knows about Tom Cruise. Yeah, I know everybody, everybody and their dog. And she wrote like ten books, and I'd say they're really interesting, especially if you're into pill walking, mountain climbing, nature adventures. And there is something about her in the Epic Museum, which is the Emigrant Museum in Dublin. And the the person that runs that wrote a cool article about her in the Irish Times recently. And we'll post the link to that below as well, along with some other sources where I got this information from if you want to check out more about Lizzie LeBlonde, which also is a really cool name. It's very superhero, James Bond drag queen-esque name I think. Thank you very much for that delightful story Shauna and thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Phenomena. So as per usual if you enjoyed it please like, share, tell all your friends, tell us. Um, We're the Phenomena podcast on Facebook, Phenomena podcast on Instagram and yes enjoy the first week of somewhat freedom from this terrible ordeal that we've been going through for months but be safe but enjoy and yeah tune in next week to find out about another fabulous irish woman bye